0: Hi, I'm Ridley Scott. Um, We're gonna talk about Blade Runner. 25 years afterwards, it's uh, very interesting to look back and try and describe lots of the decisions that were made and taken by me during the process of preparing and making the movie. Let's start with the title sequence. Uh, I knew my opening shot would be so spectacular that I didn't want the titles to upstage them in any form. And therefore, you went and, and with a very straightforward um, but, you know, handsome typeface that would be fundamentally black on, uh, white on black and would deliver the legend, uh, which would, apart from the title, the legend, but would, in fact, begin the story, describing what a replicant was and what a, a Blade Runner was. Through that, and I hadn't allowed for that at the time, but through that, I clearly had allowed for... The must would have to be music, but... Um, I had never allowed for how magical the music would be of, of Vangelis. He was my chosen musician, but, um, and I was a big fan of his, but I, I still believe that this is one of his best scores. He may disagree, but uh, I think it's wonderful. Even after 25 years, it doesn't age or date in any form. Do we have the legend? Do we not have the legend? Do we need to explain who does what? Do we need to explain the world? So it almost follows the same discussion of do you need a voiceover because the voiceover, if nothing else, could easily end up as being Irving the Explainer. And voiceovers rarely are successful in getting inside the characters whose voice we are are listening to. And I've always thought if it can be pulled off, then it can work, but it rarely rarely gets pulled off. Um, Anyone saying that I was forced into a voiceover. That's rubbish, I wasn't. I was actually working on the voiceover with a view to cleaning up the confusion, which there seemed to be confusion at the time. On reflection today, there is no confusion. And besides, there'd been a very successful voiceover just prior to that in a film called Apocalypse Now, where I think the was actually fundamentally successful to the storytelling process was the voiceover, I would say, absolutely, right? And we couldn't crack it because we couldn't quite get it written. Our Harrison wasn't happy and I wasn't happy. So the actor's not happy, he's not happy saying it. So it didn't, it was forcing something through the eye of a needle. So thank God that's gone. And the other things, the removals are honestly pretty straightforward. And if anything, I think this is the shortest version we've had by seconds, right? The five versions will For those who are going to discover the film, or those who are, you know, enthusiasts of the film, then I hope you enjoy them all and see the differences. In this instance, I felt it was better to actually have the establishing date, of course, to say that we're marginally in the future, and that um, uh, who the players would be in this rather exotic universe and uh, they would be uh, the Blade Runner, who fundamentally is another word for detective, and the Replicant, uh, that is another word for the much overused humanoid or android. The eyeball really was the symbol of the ever watchful eye and is the only Relevance to that might be a little bit Orwellian, which would be the idea of Big Brother. So are we in the world already of the Big Brother environment? And uh, it, was all, it was my theory that um, when our endless discussions with Hampton Fancher and Michael Dealey, um, that the world would be probably run and owned by three corporations, uh, maybe two. When it gets to one, it gets really dangerous. And that's real industrial imperialism. And really, whether it's about imperialism or communism, they're really fundamentally one and the same thing, aren't they? The end result is the same. So the eyeball represented that eye of Orwell. We never had a really what a minor director never does. A director never does have enough money to do a film. And uh, at this particular time, I think we were budgeted around about 20 million. And uh, at the time, I thought we might be able to scrape through, but knowing that this at this moment in time, 20 million was marginally expensive. The films that already happened that were in excess of $40 million, so we weren't the most expensive film on the block by any means. But the trouble is it was a learning curve, it was a learning process. How do I do this film? How do I illustrate it well, without it looking too familiar? I can't really shoot this in the streets of New York because it's not controllable. I can't really, and it would cost more money. And also everything I'd have to take down to make it more futuristic wouldn't really... It would, it would all cost more. Um, and therefore, I was resistant to the idea of a backlot. lot. The world in my mind had always been... Where I'd shot twice before was Hong Kong. Hong Kong prior to the world it is today. Hong Kong bore no relationship to the world it is there today. Hong Kong was a harbour in those days of a thousand junks with those marvellous sails and no skyscrapers whatsoever and only the filthy crust on the harbour. And so Hong Kong to me was almost future medieval. And that was always the image I attached in my head. So I thought that closely aligned with New York City, which still, if you've never been there before, is the most impressive place to go to for the first time, particularly in... When I went to New York for the first time it was nineteen fifty nine, when New York was a bit more grimly inhospitable, although it hadn't become dangerous at that point, and then later it was becoming more dangerous and dirtier and dirtier, and I also felt this was a city on overload. And so I thought the population, the populace that will inherit the universe will be probably the Chinese. And that's why there's a big Asian community in all of this, as well as and everything that Asia you know, encompasses. Um, there's a lot of, I think, Thailand, there's a lot of Chinese, there's a lot of Japanese, there's a whole mix in here of that Asian culture. Shall we continue? You know, backlots are very useful because they're in the confines of the studio, everything's at hand, but because they've been used for many films before, it's not so much that they're recognizable, but the scale never seems to be quite right. They all seem to look a little bit small, or a little bit dinky, or not tall enough. And I stood in this back lot thinking, I don't know how I'm gonna be able to do it here. And by now, it was kind of do it on the back lot, or don't do it at all. So I met up with Sid Mead and um, my production designer, Larry Paul, and we walked around this back lot and literally took plate photographs of every each side of the street that we're going to use and opened it up and blew them up into full-scale, not full-scale, but, um, you know, two feet by one foot photographs upon which Sid Mead could do his sketches, his magic. And we would talk about it and say, what about this here, this here, this here? And fundamentally, that's how we started to build up the main street of Blade Runner that would become the universe of Blade Runner would have to fulfil various nooks and alleys and corners and crannies of the story, and I knew that it could easily run out. So I had to be quite contained in how it lensed it and keep it corner to corner, nook to nook, and occasionally use a wide shot. You can't use a wide shot too often before you start recognizing it. But we did everything in that high street, which was the, the place where Roy Batty died, the place where Deckard jumped the gap and Rutger Hauer followed him, the chasing of Zora the on and off the tram cars in the impossibly crowded street. Zora bursts out from the back of the kind of strip club, nightclub, charges down the street. And to do that, we evolved a system of practicality, because I'd learned this in commercials. You actually start to move objects around and you can actually disguise things in two seconds. You turn something upside down or backwards and it looks different. So I use a lot of that idea, because remember, by the time I'm doing Blade Runner, I've already done Alien, I've done Duelist i have done 2,500 commercials, so, and, and I was a production designer, so I'm very user-friendly as a director towards production design. And A, I love it, and love to get involved, and because of that, I'm like a good coach, saying, what about that? Turn them upside down, it'll be better. You'll never recognise them. Half the battle is them saying, well, recognise, I said, look me in the eye, watch my, read my lips we will not recognize it, got it? So they go, okay, turn upside down, paint it yellow, and you got something else, and you just save yourself a giant construction bill. Notwithstanding, that's what we did in the very first day of Prince of Photography. I walked in, and Larry's beautiful pillars, neo-Egyptian pillars, were the wrong way around. And mainly because all the detail that was at the top, and because I was anamorphic, I would lose most of it. Once i go in, I'm gonna lose everything. Rightly or wrongly, I said, you know what, can we turn the pillars upside down, how long to do it? They said, these are very heavy, it's gonna be two o'clock. I just exercised that decision to do that at a particular time. and I think it was the right thing to do. The room looked better. We evolved it again and again. We even wrapped those columns later in what I call napkins... ...to take the place of Tyrell's bedroom. Because his office was actually his bedroom, his bedroom was his office. So all I did was move out the furniture, move in the bed. ...dress the bottom of the columns and save yourself a fortune. So there's a lot of reused items in this... ...which I think is the secret of keeping things within reason... ...that the reins on the budget... ...and maximizing on beautifully detailed stuff. You know, shoot it from a different angle. Aside from the the physical set design and the... That as, ...as we understand it to be there were one or two locations we used that I just couldn't fit within the back lot. So I always wanted to use the Union Station, which would seem to be so magnificent. I want to use the downtown tunnel that no one had really shot at that moment, which had these beautiful tiles. I was standing there one night when I was r- reconnoitering the Million Dollar Theater area, when I was looking at the Bradbury, because I love the Bradbury building as well, I wanted to use all of them. And I watched the cars coming through, Notice when a car comes into the middle of the high street, into the, end of, the of the road, you get a symmetrical helation on the tiles. I thought, wow, that's futuristic. So what I did is I had them go in, and they didn't. They just blasted it with water. Actually, they didn't. We didn't wash the tiles out. We just hit it with water, and then before it dried out, just brought the car down in the middle. It kind of looked futuristic and glittered like diamonds. And um, the Bradbury Building, I was told, was a cliche, and a lot, millions of TV series have been made in it. And eventually you just stop listening. You can't listen. They don't, they're not inside my head, so. And I discovered that very early on from many, many commercials. Your job as a director is to dictate what you want. Okay, that's the job. As a producer, one of my hardest problems is finding a director who has that assertive quality and has a vision. It's one of the biggest problems to find that. The director with a vision, who will stick with it, and knows how to get it, right? My, not not so much problem or battle. It's more my job at that moment was to be as user-friendly as possible in terms of knowing what I'm going for is fairly outrageous and therefore leading people down that path to understand the world we're going into. So even if you don't understand it, just back off, let me do it, and actually everything will be fine. And that's, again, a quality you learn from just doing millions of commercials, lots of advertising agencies, lots of negotiations. And so, is the job political as a director? Absolutely. I don't think I've ever had one of these. Reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Answer as quickly as you can. Yeah, sure. 1187 at Hunterbasser. Yeah, that's the hotel. What? Where I live. Nice place? Yeah, sure, I guess. There was an escape from the Doug Trumbull had always been one of the, the best of the best, and um, I called him saying I'm going to do this, and he said I'm busy and I'm going to be. Well, what are you? Gonna, I'm going to be doing a movie for myself. I think he was going to make a film, direct a film called Brainstorm. And uh, but nevertheless, he, he loved the script, and and we got on well. Always had done, and um, he wanted to be involved. He wanted EEG to be involved and so said, I won't let you down. And Doug's one of those guys, when he says that, you know it, you know it, you're gonna be well taken care of. And I was fascinated to, you know, have the education of not digital, this is not digital, this is blow by blow, hand painted frames, actually, in today's world, in today's marketplace. And so it's very traditional maps and very primitive form of, um, of motion control. I would say, this is the shot, I want the shot, and um, we, this is the scale. And they built the models, and I was a little horrified by how small the models were, because the models were, the the um, pyramid, I doubt, was more than three feet high. And uh, and he Doug said, yeah, but, you know, it is a bit small, he said, because normally for a miniature, I'd always go as big as possible. He said, but we can't afford it. And not only that, we only built half the pyramid, there's only half the pyramid there. So, um, and you'd be amazed how small the cityscape was, it's smaller than this room. But we're gonna be pressed way down on the kind of stop he wanted to get the depth of field, which you have to get on something like that, otherwise you know it's a model. So it's catch-22. The smaller you get, the more difficult it is, because your depth of field's gonna be show itself immediately, or you're gonna go down F45 to get a huge stop. And so f45 or whatever that is, is the tolerance level and the lens getting the light on there to be able to light it, it becomes a difficulty. Or you've got to move it for one frame every four seconds or whatever your time is going to be. So you have to have motion control. You can't just have a chap with a dolly, push that along, that ain't going to work. And worse than that, I wanted smoke because I thought these models yeah, they need help and they need a lot of backlight and they need atmosphere. He said, oh, aerial perspective. I said, yeah, aerial perspective. Um, atmosphere in the city. You go, look across here, right now, got aerial perspective. And I said, that's what makes these things live. And so it was a really exchange of ideas. Doug's saying, well, you know what, let me think about that. So we came back with a, a literally robot camera. He developed a robot. Camera and said, "I'm going to give you the smoke." And he said, "The problem is, if I'm doing one frame every five seconds for the five-second exposure, or one-second exposure is endless. If I have smoke in there, that smoke's going to be moving, so we're going to have flutter. In other words, the image will flutter. So when you project 24 frames a second, all that smoke's going to move, and it's going to be terrible. So we've got to find a way of seamlessly." ...filling a space with smoke that never changes... ...over a shot that might last for 17 hours, right? So I found him ordering lots of electric fans... ...rigged to tiny smoke alarms... ...to, uh, and that's what it is. He linked the smoke smoke alarms, good ones, to the fan... ...so, with an automatic switch on... So whatever the smoke level fell to a certain point, the fan would go on, and there'd be a little puff of smoke from the edges. And we ran the first rush print with the smoke and by God, it worked. Genius, genius. And, um, and I would stand and go in the morning and EG and Doug would look at the seismograph and go, bugger, got to start again. Because overnight there'd been a shudder. Because you you're not aware of it, but LA shudders all the time. So if you shudder, a degree that you didn't even feel it, it's over for the shot. So that opening shot, I think, is something shocking, like 15 passes on an original negative. And the explosions are done in the, with oil drums in the car park, where he's, he's trying to mark on the glass where the chimney's gonna be that he's shot, he's gonna stick on there an explosion behind it. So it really is China graph on a sheet of glass, it's like, amazing. Involuntary dilation of the iris. Trumbull was the best, and um, particularly watching his work with Stanley Kubrick, and clearly 2001 was seminal. And for the first time for me, science fiction felt real. The world felt real, and um, that was the first time I really became engaged and fully fascinated by the idea I must do a science fiction film. Notwithstanding, George Lucas followed, like, within five or six years with his version of Star Wars, which the best of the best was George's, which the one he directed was, again, seminal for me, and was the absolute, so right now you have the two extremities of science fiction, you have the exotic fantasy fairy prince of the universe story, which is almost a fairy story, the Star Wars. And then the other hand, you've got that very high tech end of NASA, and both worked. and. Here I'm trying to do is devise a urban, very much urban science fiction, which is, well, not even science fiction, urban futuristic view within which that world will support the idea and this thesis that we will be making human beings, we will be making replicants, we'll replicate human beings, and the only extremity will be that will we ever Disintegrate or deteriorate enough to actually make human beings into slave labour or human beings into the spearhead of armies that won't go into the places that um, we want to or in those days the idea of spearhead groups going into space where if you replicate a human being are they more likely to take to the idea of cryogenics so you can put them down for 15 years and restart them so they can kick in when they're approaching Pluto, right? All that touches on the possibilities of science today. In then, it was a little bit more of a fantasy, but right now, that's kind of almost eminently practical, right? And uh, this kind of followed through on Alien, because there's almost like a connective tissue between all the stuff I went through on Alien into the environment of the Nostromo and people living with close and close proximity with people, who are still have earthbound connections. And here we have people on Earth. So almost this world could easily be the city that supports the crew that go out alien. In other words, when the alien crew comes back in, they might go into this place and go into a bar just off the street near where Deckard lives. That's how I thought about that. You're watching a stage. Also, there's a kind of exotic sexuality to the idea that. Uh, We've got to tread very carefully how we talk about this, but the idea of replication of beautiful females and their various uses, uh, that's very much there and very prevalent there, particularly with the beautiful Rachel and uh, the so-called pleasure models that we talk about with um, the other two gals. Um, It was a delicate matter, but I think we always kept on the right side of delicacy. and. the possibilities being outrageous. And through that, the outrage is most strongly expressed by one of the slaves, who is Roy Batty, who is oddly more human than human, making Deckard understand the outrage that was being carried out. So it covered all kinds of grounds. It's too neat to talk about it saying, well, how much does this relate to apartheid and all that nonsense? It it doesn't really, I can shoehorn the discussion into that if you want. But it's silly. Nah, no, not really. It's a science fiction. This is a futuristic fiction which could be possible. Us witnessing a replicant becoming as human as a human, or not more human than a human, but as human as a human, by finding not only did he have built in memories, which is what we're told about by Tyrell, and then later by Descartes, who re and states that, with her saying, they're not your memories. So we can assume that Roy Batty, being very sophisticated Nexus 6, whatever he is, has private thoughts. And if you feed in enough information into a computer, then the romantic notion is, at what moment does a computer start to have its own feelings, okay? It's a bit like saying, to play chess, you gotta have intuition, right? Now, computers haven't got intuition, but if you've packed in all the conceivable moves the computer can make, have you also built in inadvertently by cross-collateralization and accident intuition. If you're intuition, then that means you've got feelings. So that means the computer might get angry, right? So it's a good enough thesis to discuss, certainly for movies. And maybe there's something in that which is logical, because I think... Scientists more and more frequently look towards movie ideas with a view to, or even science fiction, with a view to speculation of saying, what if and why not? Because, you know, why not? An idea can come from a scientist or can come from a writer. Uh, he comes up with an idea and the person who can put that together can say, my God, that could be possible, Right? The um, bathroom scene, which was actually shot later at EMI in London on a pickup day, series, of off in the in the Star Wars stage. The complaint, if there was a form of complaint, was that we didn't see Deckard do much uh, detective work. But honestly, I didn't think you needed it. I thought Deckard had bags of character and lots of other interesting attributes. Uh, but I thought, well, okay, we'll do a bit of detective work. Problem was, the bedroom scene you see here, it used to also have what, in American terms, they'd call a bed that folds up and goes into the wall, called a Murphy bed to go on the wall, where, in fact, one of the replicants was upside down inside the Murphy bed being silent, and where eventually I'd have a massive punch-up in there because it came out of the Murphy bed. We X'd that because I couldn't afford it. So it was really about... Gaff walking in there with Descartes. Descartes looks around. Gaff stands there leaning on the bureau and makes this little figure to leave this trail of origami. Or oh, origami is in paper, but he leaves a little st- mastic figure, which basically saying to Descartes, Are you good enough for any challenging Descartes? While Descartes' gone, the bathroom was a perfect place to have Descartes do a little bit of detection work and also in there, this is all a late invention, would find a scale. ...of a snake, which you'd think might be a fish, or worse still, would be very confused... ...what the hell it was in the bottom of this filthy bath that was very suitable... ...for this particular kind of hotel. And um, I was shooting the stuff and then all other kinds of pickups We were really finished by then, just close shots and things like that. And Vic Armstrong was starting to do Harrison's doubling. So Harrison wasn't available, Harrison was doing something else, so I had to do it. I thought I might get away with it and shoot. It all in rather moody backlight. Because Vic did look like Harrison. Very, very good double. And Vic had started, I think, with Indiana Jones. And um, I think I was talking to Vic next about doing something called Legend. And um, so I got Vic in to do a bit of handwork. And then I stared at him thinking, my God, he looks like Harrison. Maybe. And I just shot him coming through the door. And then his hand in the bath's easy and all that stuff's easy. And then him pondering the scale, I tilted the camera back up and thought, "I wonder if that will fly." We saw it in rushes. So we figured we could just use it. Harrison's never said anything to this day. <laughs> we went to a, again today. I wouldn't have bothered with this. I'd have just done the lots of beeswax everywhere and looking like ice and would have put a bit of breath in there, but I wanted it to be like a deep freeze, and so we had to go to a deep freeze, and, uh, which was a big, you know, meat packing locker room. So the art department worked in there pre-switching it on, and then switched it on and started to spray water gently all over it so it started to drip and form icicles. And then we went in there and shot for a day. It was quite cold. And by having that, we saw the breath, but much to my horror, initially, I was, couldn't get the breath. So after all that trouble, I couldn't get the bloody breath because the lights kept warming the room up. And um, so we had to switch the lights off, let it freeze up again, and then say, right, ready, action, quick, and we'd have to shoot quickly because the degree of breath was over about three or four degree rise, and you don't you don't see it. But we, we do see it now. Uh, here was good because I'm against the backlight, so I put him right against the backlight with some darkness around it so I can see the breath. Coming across the portals. Um, but I think um, we were going into one exotic environment after the other, and um, I was watching it again, having not really seen it properly for certainly 16 years, or even I think probably 20 years. And uh, I thought it really stood up, really stood up well. I think for him to break the pieces of silly. You have to freeze him so cold, for him to break, you would be like minus 500 degrees and you'd just drop him from a great height and you he might shatter, yeah? But not in that lab, not in that freezer. I'm a realist and I think that's why Alien has got to feel like a real biological beast and the chest burst has got to really be a buff. So I think it just crosses the line into too much fantasy. Too much fantasy. I think there's a moment when I'm watching a horror film or watching a science fiction today and think, "Eh, too much magic. Or, you know what I mean, too much this, too much that. Back off, you had it earlier, right? If only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. Questions. I don't know answers. Who does? Tyrone. He knows everything. A real corporation. His big boss, big genius. He he designed your mind, your brain. Huh? Smart. (laughs) Not an easy man to see. Yeah. Sebastian, who? Jay. Sebastian. I used to storyboard everything, and um, so on this, I was doing a lot of storyboard. And, um, or I'll do it in the planning. A lot of it is with me is visceral. I'll do it on the spot because the storyboard is done usually a very quiet time when you're at home and with um, the idea for instance of wheat for the, the mythology of radiator was worked out on a pad and um, the idea of a hand on the wheat uh, would be shot in a wheat field and because uh, there was something beautiful about that and it's something you do you know and uh, they The double was standing in the field, because Russell was a double we had in in Italy, and um, he was doing just that. That was the final shot I got from a Steadicam, and that becomes the first shot in the movie. So it becomes about his dream. His dream is the place he wants to be. That's how these things evolve, and you have to leave yourself room open to let your imagination run, even when you're filming. And, you know, it's worth talking here about Charles Node's costume design. Um, Charlie Nod had, uh, with Charlie, this would be my first film, and then we did Legend, and then we did later 1492. And um, Charles Nod was particularly inventive here. And I remember when I was testing the girls, we tested four girls, and Charles came back and said, my God, I've found Greta Garbo's overcoats and out of this special wardrobe in, in Hollywood. And, and um, so we tested the girls in one of Greta Garbo's beautifully tailored coats. And Charlie always had a great eye for costume. And I think her wardrobe in this is spectacular. Um, I, I think it influenced a lot of fashion designers. Yeah, You could even almost see a bit of the beginnings of, do I mean Dolce Gabbana and things like that? I th- maybe. Because we're talking, what year we're we talking here is 80, 81. So you've got the advent of a lot of big shoulders and things happening at that point. And I think we may have kicked it off, right? Because, you know, it's, it's people like that that notice these films. People in design, people in rock and roll. He showed you his. When it got to be your turn, you chickened and ran. Remember that? That a magical moment in the life... Of a being that wasn't real. So the little spider back kitchen window, back doors from my childhood, and that's just something I said to Hampton. Because we were trying to think of this thing, yeah, but things like what? I'd say, well, things like for instance, I'd sit in our back dining room, as a kid I'd be five years old. And I would I always remember there was a web around a window frame and in there was a dead wasp. So you, and I said, like that, and it, but it was vivid in my imagination, and I don't know why it still sits in, I don't know why occasionally I think about it, but it's like that. So you need to find those, those moments that would just, because the brain plays tricks and plays funny games where you find things coming back to you. Sometimes a smell or something will evoke an image, right? And um, it was like, uh, and I think the more personalized you make a film, the better. And sometimes you pull it off, sometimes you don't. But the important thing is that you're communicating, that people kind of get it, get what you're talking about. Because what hers was about, the outrage of implanting someone else's memories inside her psyche. It's a pretty interesting thought. Pretty original thought, actually. It's good, good thinking, good idea. That would become the unravelling of the mystery of Descartes, who had a very curious thought, particularly in such a city, in such a job, in such an environment that why would a person like this think about something so specifically odd that um, it's memorable? And so that's where the unicorn comes from, because maybe the music evokes memories of green, which is what Vangelis plays, and in that is the symbol of something you'd rarely see in these days, which is a beautiful forest, which made a nonsense of the ending we used to have. And... um, out of that would say to those who've been paying attention that Deccan is a replicant. <laughs> I thought it's going to be more interesting if that photograph comes alive for, like, one and a half seconds. So it's dead easy to do. All I do is shoot that woman in the balcony somewhere, some little will settle it. And, and because on film it's moving, we have a bit of greenery shadow doing that. And we hold a piece of white paper where she's hand-supported, and Doug just tracks it and puts it in the middle. So it's still, and then it runs, and it's out, and people say, did that run? So it's a little piece of magic, but people always remember it. It's funny. Um, that's the magic of filmmaking. The irony is I have that photograph right now at home. It's framed, and it hasn't Now Doug Trumbull took that, took a plate shot, saying, okay, if we're gonna do this as a plate, it was about that size, whatever, it's like six by four. He said it, and this is a high-definition plate. We're gonna go, we're gonna have to play around with this and go in, and I sat there one afternoon, desperately trying to work out technology of the, in those days in terms of three-dimensional photographs. So if you think about three-dimensional photographs, you know, if you've actually got a conve- concave mirror, you're going to see into corners that you can't see unless you, you go in on the mirror and you're only going to see the surface. But if you can rock... And roll, you're going to get a reflection of what, and that's where the argument collapses. But it works well for here because you actually see him looking into the corners of that which we cannot see, on hidden parts of the of the frame. So it kind of works, I think. But if you if you actually sit and really think about it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. Well, I just did it, and uh, and um, you know I think. Uh, you, as you earn the right, you explain less. Because <laughs> otherwise, why are we paid You know, to do that? If you want something special, you've got to let me run. Um, and that's the, way, that's the way to put it, really. It's, it's not conceited, it's a fact. You, You know, it's like, you can't lock down Jim Cameron, you can't lock down Steven Spielberg. You can't. You've got to let them fly a little bit. This film was honestly resurrected by the advent of MTV. So MTV started off the a great bang with a lot of really terrific rock videos, which. To me, weren't so much performance videos, but were more little filmlets within the bands got involved. And then I started to notice that watching MTV, which I watched quite a lot of, actually, I was quite fascinated. I thought, my God, that's Blade Runner. And I think, oh, no, oh. So I noticed that there was an evolution that started to happen with filmmakers and rock and roll bands. And that clearly fashion designers, architects, all, all look at films. I was told by a very leading architect that he would run this in his office one of the biggest architects today. They'd run the his office regularly on a monthly basis to say, look, evolution, retro, um, technology is beautiful. The tech, the tech is beautiful. Put the tech on the outside of the building, not on the inside. So it's good that films are influential like that, I think. It's always nice to think that this was influential in that respect. Hungry Jaya. I got stuff inside. Now Mr. Sanderson also had this beautiful quality of ingenuous innocence, which he's like that. This is exactly what Bill's like. He's a charming man, I haven't seen him for years actually, but a very charming man. And um, he is for me almost playing himself here. It's what he talks like, his accent is like this. There's a very nice ingenuous quality to him. And uh, kind of lost touch, but I haven't been seeing what he's been doing recently. Are you live in this building all by yourself? Yeah, I live here pretty much alone right now. No housing shortage around here, plenty of room for everybody. The idea of the lights, which were also a big deal... ...where these are the details, I mean, I'm saying, no, no, I want horizontal lights coming through the apartments. Why? And I would then say, because... You want me to be logical about it? Because we have air traffic in the city, and because we have tall buildings, very tall buildings... ...and there's some kind of governor, governing systems, that, let's say, don't allow a car to crash... Or certainly, I don't think the legalities will ever happen where you have air traffic in a city like this. But for the purpose of this film, it would be that all the buildings have beacons on them. And when the beacons... They say, yeah, but they start to get logical. So the beacons spin inwards onto its own apartment. But I say, no, it's the building opposite. Oh, now, this becomes irritating when I have to start describing and justifying things because I know how it's going to turn out. On film, it's going to be beautiful. And I'm going to put a sound on it. So you put a sound for light. So they said, a sound for light. I said, yes, I want a sound for light. So Jimmy Shields finds a sound for light. And um, that's how Jimmy worked. He's great. He said, what do you want? I said, I want a sound for light. He said, what's that sound like? I said, I have no idea. You go and think about it. So Jimmy would go and sit in this tiny little sound room where he'd make things out of, you know, m- empty milk bottles and silver foil from a cigarette pack. And he'd be doing this, rattling these milk bottles with this silver foil on the bottom with a two mics in it, and you get some wonderful sound. And that's, you know, no high-tech stuff. It was the ear, the artistry of the ear, you know. Uh, and then you'd slow it down or speed it up and mix it. And, and I'd go in there and he said, Jim would say, um, okay, here's the sound of like, version one, play it. Silence, he said, version two. And he'd do this and you'd go through like eight versions and you'd choose your man or you'd move on. I'd been thinking about unicorns, because I figured legend would somehow include unicorns. And I'd always been influenced by Cocktail's Beauty and the Beast. And I I couldn't quite do that, but I want to incorporate as part of it, and that would be partly darkness. The devil would be involved with the beauty. And the um, idea of the hero from the forest, would be engaged with the most beautiful and fastest creature alive, which would be a unicorn. And I'd um, and, and met with William Yutzberg, and Gatz had come down from his place in Montana. He's a kind of cowboy, Gatz, poet, cowboy. And I'd read something of his, two books, which I thought were pretty good. And, um, and I'd said when he arrived what it was about. Um, talk about this for symbiography. I, and he said, So, what's it about? And I said, Well, I'm going to show you a film first. He, I showed him Beauty and the Beast, which he liked a lot, surprisingly. It's a very good print, a cocktail. And then I said, Well, actually, in, in very broad strokes, it's really about getting the, the most valuable, most beautiful, the fastest creature of life that is also a symbol of goodness. He said, What's that? I said, A unicorn. And he went, Really? I said, yeah, he said, well, I drove down this morning, it took me eight hours to get from Montana. So he said, I was driving to the airport on the last four hours. He said there was a guy on the road hitchhiking. He said, no, I would never normally pick somebody up, but he looked harmless enough, so I picked him up and said, I'm going into, further into town. He said, and the, during the drive, about three hours, the guy was very silent, except towards the end, he finished his pack of cigarettes and was doing something with his hands on the paper And just before he got out of the car, he said, this is a present for you, thanks. And he said what he'd done, he'd made a piece of origami uh, of of a unicorn. So he'd been given the unicorn before he got to me, which was bizarre, isn't it? And so, somehow that transposed itself into the very odd image, and then later would be used by Gaff. So the jigsaw puzzle came around the cart before, the, the horse before, the cart before the horse, gradually worked into the end, that is it melodramatic, is it okay if Deckard's a, a, a replicant? And at the time, it's like, you know, it's okay he is, and it's okay if he isn't. It really depends on how you do it. And there's only two choices. So I always figured in the back of my mind, he was the natural choice would be, he was a replicant, particularly if there was gonna be a sequel. And um, the sequel will never be, um, but they drive off together. And is is she gonna... Pity she won't live, but then who does? Is a truism, right? How long will she live? And was he a Nexus 6 or was he a Nexus 7? And where do you go? Because you've lost Roy Batty. So you need a new, you know, a protagonist. Do we need it? It was all about, do we need it? Everything was always about, do we need it? Do we need this? Do we need this? And Actually, it becomes quite tiresome. Particularly as I felt i have earned the right at that point. Uh, uh, just say, yeah, I think it'd be good to do. <laughs> I think it'd be nice. Um, but I think, you know, to be fair, it, this was such a, a fantasy. And uh, don't forget, it's, a, a, it's the, probably the first of its kind fed it's absolutely the first of its kind, I looked at all the other future urban films uh, which were just not very good and um, and they either suffered from lack of budget or lack of imagination or lack of reality you know most of them, most most of these science fiction didn't work because they're not real they look crap. they were didn't work you know they didn't stand up and um um so yeah it was I was taking a, lot, a journey which i f- kept. Th- having um, double-edged feelings in terms of both being irritated but understanding at the same time. Because it was hard making this movie. As Harrison said, it was a bitch. If it was a bitch for him, it was really a bitch for me. (laughs) And the thing about science fiction, which is really attractive, is that it's one of the few mediums that allows you to go into that in depth, into that kind of detail. You know, I'm doing a film right now, finishing actually right now, a film called American Gangster, which I'm very very proud of actually. It's um, one of the better films I've made. And uh, with Denzel Washington, Russell Crowe. But whilst we have a density of sound, you don't have to have have the same, well, you have to, how do you invent sound, you know? Alien, you have to invent sounds that don't exist. Um, just the sound of telemetry. Uh, t- but I want the telemetry to be like music. What do you mean music? Well, and you, you you start to evolve and justify the creative process that you go through, saying telemetry can be impressive, telemetry can be nearly silent, telemetry can be irritating, or it can be beautiful. Right? So there's all kinds of choice to be that made that. You wouldn't make that choice for a film which is really about today. You know, you'd make it a film about science fiction where the detail... ...God's in the details. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought all this worked pretty successfully. And we, you know, we didn't quite pull off one thing, but I think we got another. It got its own universe. And I'd always been very influenced by um, jean Giro Mobius... ...and loved what he did in his comic strip forms. And uh, so clearly, you know, I'm kind of very influenced by that, but you can only be influenced by that to a certain extent, because film and comics are two quite separate organisms, and one can never be absolutely like the other. I know they try, and they do it in films, and they digitally reconform it to an agonized degree, where, at the end of it, you wonder, why did you do that? Why didn't you just make it as a comic strip or make it as a movie? Maybe the most successful right now is 300, isn't it? And, and uh, which I haven't seen, but I understand there's some pretty formidable effects. And um, and but you you can't, one thing you know for sure is you don't know anything. And and one thing for sure, everything's changing. So you can't say you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. Already I'm looking at this thinking, it's pretty damn good, but, uh, what would I do today? I'd probably change it a lot. Well, for a start, I'd probably have $160 million. <laughs> and I think this, for the time, even at the time, was pretty, pretty good price for what this was. I don't want to name the films that were already beyond $40 million, but we know which ones they were. And so I figured I was about just past medium, middle-range middle expensive. And I think they got a pretty good bargain for it. I think they got a good deal. That's the thing. Um, today, all of this would just cost more. I mean, I think we shot... I don't know what the shooting schedule was now. I seem to sh... I remember shooting for 11 weeks at night. Well, curious to read the budget. That was cheap then for 18 weeks, 25 million. Bloody hell, that's good. Um, particularly on the... Mine, because we're on the back lot, the funny kind of way is cheaper. Because the lab company was on the back lot. Half the lot was Columbia, wasn't it? Columbia, Lad Corporation, and Warner's, yeah. Um, so I don't know, um, but uh, all this stuff works great. The video telephones, which always look terrible, the, this looks pretty real because we've scrawled on it. People have been writing telephone numbers on it. On what is the will be a flat? In those now, will be a not even a flat screen. Twenty nineteen won't be a. Well, I don't know what it will be. I doubt we'll go to a hologram, because it's silly. Just have a flat screen, and as you can see him. I, I always try to keep it within the realms of practicality. Like, the water in his tap is still cold, and when it should be hot, you know, and things like that. Things break down. And, uh, he still likes Ching Tao, and I guess punching in the mouth, he still bleeds into the glass, things like that. Gentlemen, Kathy Lewis presents Miss Hillary and the snake. Watch her take the pleasures from the serpent, advance, corrupted men. This took the place of having, again, we couldn't afford it, a very exotic mud dance where it was gonna be like mud animation. So it was really, truly sinister um, and would evolve into a female and then a snake entwined with a female. It'd be pretty uh, organic um, and then revealing that all, it was all one big act, right? And we couldn't do that. So it, instead it was meet, meeting her in the, around the back near the dressing rooms, but I think it works very well. And this is funny, he said, kind of like Jerry Lewis. Of I said, what? He said, Jerry Lewis, um, kind of. He, he described Humphrey Bogart had done it in a movie where he adopts the voice. Now, what film movie is that? I forget. But Bogart had done a similar thing and put on a voice. Now, what film would that be? I know that Harrison probably had Great admiration for Humphrey Bogart. How do you to be exploited in mean exploited? A lot of leading the way here. But yeah, but how are you gonna mean, get? Her? So we, we don't worry about. It. We'll put that scale on her dress. Is the dress from? Is the scale from her dress? Was the dre- scale from a snake? To, to your huh? <laughs> and this was a throwback from the Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? In that. Philip Dick has this bizarre detail of the fact that in the world that you're in, if you, you could actually afford to have a biomechanoid me- animal, a bio... whatever it is, biochemistry... Um, bi- not biological and me- mechanical um, animal according to how much money you've got. So snakes were cheap, sheep were expensive, um, and it was this weird culture in the Philip Dick book. And I kind of... We, I, I was engaged by the, that in the book, but then it only became a detail in this. It was hard to fathom. It was hard to be logical. And what I wanted to do is be more logical, because in logic is the truth. Somewhere lies the truth. And the idea... It's easier to make work the fact that you'll make replicant human beings... ...to service the human race, and either slave labour or army labour... ...or environmental places that people wouldn't want to work... um, ...which is fundamentally slave labour. To make that work was somehow a little bit Orwellian... ...but it was easier to do, funnily enough... ...and justify why somebody has an electric... um, Sheep, you know what I mean? And the word replicant actually came out of an idea of, I think David Webb Peoples' daughter was studying genetics, who had said, you guys can't call these androids. Why don't you call them? We're working in replication right now, so what about replicant? I I believe that's how it came about. And um, it was unusual at the time. It took a little bit of... Getting used to it, and then I thought, at the end of the day, why not? It's really great. It's, a, it's accurate. It is what it is. And who would have thought, I think less than 18 years later, we're talking about replication, genetic replication in the Senate, I think. I think it was short time, well, a relatively short time afterwards. They were going for permission for replication of animals and sheep and cattle and things like that. So if you can do that, you can do human beings. This was a pretty tough shoot, even though it's, for the most part, done in close-up. Everything's moving, and rather than trying to do it wide, you can't because you want to see the people, so... But I think on a big screen, it works great. You get a real sense of density, overkill, and a very strong Asian society. The light went all green there, because we used sodium light. I always love that light. The idea of trafficators saying, stop now, stop now, stop now, or mechanical um, trafficators that tell you what to do it seems to make sense to me, but it's all part of the toxic overkill of noise. Noise is toxic. Scale always difficult and backlots, and I think we pull the scale off the trick about scale is don't go too wide; it'll give yourself away. So everything was kind of like slightly long lens to make a sense of we could be round the corner on twenty nineteen of Forty Second Street and Broadway, or you know, or Wall Street, and how it's developed and how it's evolved. With the occasional big wide shots, we'll say this is the city, and that's the that's the premise I stuck to. It that's all I could afford to do. These times are not seriously developing into many multiple cameras, I think. On this, I doubt there's three. Um, in the days of, say, doing Black Hawk Down, there's 11. And, you know, it's still the idea of cameramen coping with the idea of seeing I can only cope with the light from one direction. Gradually, I realised that's bullshit. You can do it from, if you think three-dimensionally, you can do it. And um, to the extent that I know what to do, <laughs> So, in this instance, I think there's only that, I think there's one camera um, on Harrison, one at the end as she's running through that glass, two at the end, I think there's only two at the end, where one will stay wide and one will stay close. You better get it, otherwise you gotta do it again. And then you have gotta come back and redress the windows, put in those big sheets of glass, and that's all sugar glass. So the sugar glass you gotta be careful with because that size is fairly thick. So you gotta be careful, sugar glass is only like a, f- clear material that will disintegrate, fall apart, collapse, but I wouldn't like to fall on it badly. So I had to be careful, she had to be careful. And um, we, I thing we didn't want, basically. You look at it, you shoot and look at your rushes and then see what you need to do. Now you could have gone again if we had to, but it would have been a bit of a disaster. If the guy been out of focus, I'd been really in trouble. And I think what I noticed the other night is how really great the focus pullings were, because we're pretty low-key, it's anamorphic, and it's 25 years ago. So those lenses weren't the greatest. So the focus pulling was pretty damn good. It was amazing, actually. I was noticing. I was watching the other day thinking, my God, I had it raining hard. Oof, I mean, so. But you know, I do it in layers so people aren't getting as wet as they, you think. I'm in it. This is what he says, Qing Tao. Yeah, what do you want? Qing Tao. First time I heard of Qing Tao, Harrison knew what it was called. He said, yeah, it'll be Qing Tao. I said, okay, Qing Tao. Now I drink Qing Tao for this a good beer. Yeah. I think uh, Bryant comes after this and says, "You've got still four more and um when he's just done this. look almost as bad as skin up on the sidewalk. I'm going home. But learn from this guy again. He's a goddamn one-man slaughterhouse. That's what the design of vehicles in the future is always dodgy. Three. And I was very careful to get the sturdy yeah. sense of scale, because they always look like Toy Town, and future cars look terrible. In fact, now the certain cars which are ecologically friendly look like t- Toy Town, so it's finally here. Um no, no, I should be driving one. On, but I think we got the spinners really great. And everything, actually, the cabs and everything else is um, retroed existing vehicles, because that's all we could afford to do. I think I only had, like, two spinners. See, there's an old car. But I thought old is okay as well, because with 2019, you could easily have an old BMW. You could have a 40-year-old car. So these cars are still around. Yeah, he's a big guy, actually. He's taller than Harrison. Harrison's got to be 6'1", 6'2". I I had to say how great Harrison was at taking it and getting beaten up and getting thrashed and and really carrying that character through as a character of absolute confusion himself. And realization, gradual building realization of being a man and a system the way the system is controlling him. And uh, in a way, it is a funny, it's an Orwellian kind of story, isn't it? It's almost like communism, the idea of Big Brother. And I thought Harrison really did very well at sticking to his guns and his design character, which is gonna be an anti-hero. He's not gonna be the traditional hero, which I think is something that always played against us initially, uh, because everyone at this juncture, Harrison was so quickly thrust into being Indiana Jones Han Solo, you know, the quirky space cowboy who'll say, you know, if it looks too dangerous out there, screw that, I'm not going to do that, I'll go in the other direction. And that was always the humorous, endearing side of the, this, the character. In this, the guy is um, on a journey of absolute discovery. It's pretty unique, it's a very unique part for him. I always liked that Harrison said, I'm going to have blood in my mouth. So when I drink, the blood will go into the. Is that coolest? That's really cool. (laughs) I get them bad. Part of the business. I found as I was evolving on this that actually the story was pretty purple, and was not exactly a a Dracula movie but it was as purple as a Dracula movie. And that, that's why I was talking earlier about what I was kind of pleased by is how some of the good theatricality stood up, like the scenes with Roy Batty and Sebastian and her, and they're, they're kind of arch, but they're deliberately arch, and but they're not camp; they're good. <laughs> so the film took on that form, so the cadence of the movie, which was like this slower, if you like, cadence of the way things evolved was deliberate. Maybe, mine and Alien, I didn't, nothing happened for 45 minutes, but the actual happening, the nothing happening was pretty interesting. So by the time that egg opened, you knew you were in real trouble. So there's nothing wrong with taking your time until you get to the moment that you want to really deliver it and then you deliver it. And um, that's part of the trick. I think is, don't see the shark too often, right? And take your time before the shark comes up. When it comes, make it really hurt. <laughs> this is one of my favorite wardrobes for her. Um, it's a beautiful linen jacket. I sound like a fashion designer, but it's absolutely spectacular with her wide shoulders and the hair works and it's a light linen suit. I think the apartment is Particularly successful. And this is where we're using the lens, the light splitting device to get her eyes to glow as she comes forward. So I didn't want this to there. You see the eyes glowing? I didn't want the glowing eyes to be on every replicant, every inch of the way. So as she walks forward, they will disappear, become more reflections. Disappear. Right. And that's done with a lens, what I call a light splitter, which is a small half-mirrored glass set at 45 degrees to the camera. So the lens is shooting through it, but the, the reflective surface is having reflected into it a very small pup, which is attached to the camera, which is on a, a, on a dimmer. And as you increase it through the lens, I'm looking straight into her retina with the teeniest of amounts of fill, which won't affect the fill on our face, the retina reflects light back straight into the emulsion. Simple. And it, work, it works amazingly on the owl. That owl is a perfect example, because the owl, of course, is a night creature. So the re- retina, on our retinas are incredibly sensitive. You know, the retina is way stronger than 3M. You know that material called 3M? which will pick up the light like the 3M's on the, the screens, OK? Well, your retina is way more sophisticated. Than that. And that's what we did. Also here, I think this is one of the most beautifully lit scenes. Jordan Cronenworth was a very great cameraman. And I chose very carefully uh, when I came to Hollywood, because I didn't really... In that sense, I was the new kid on the block. i never shot a film in Hollywood before. And I'd barely... I think I'd only shot in L.A. twice before... for some commercial, I don't know what it was. I hadn't even been on a back a lot, so the excitement of going onto a back lot in the, through the Warner's Gate every morning was funny. It was like the movies. I used to think, Oh, I used to see this in Alfred Hitchcock movies and Gary Cooper movies and Clark Gable movies. So choosing the crew was tricky and what I didn't know at that juncture was that I'm tender being in my own domain in the UK, which also include Europe, in certainly advertising I'd used to being at that moment who I was, and without any ego, that we were probably one of the most important production companies in Europe at that point. Zian I was used to choosing the cameraman sometimes, the crew, certainly. But here, the major cameraman, Jordan Cronenberg, would actually have his crew, his unit. So you've got one or two favorite operators. You've got the best boy, the grips, the gaffer, they're all one team. And um, out of that, I went with that. And I think what I got out of this is a spectacularly beautiful film. I still think it's a bit of a benchmark, you know, in terms of the way things look. It's great you find a new person, you know, particularly for a film like this. So I'd really pushed it, and they let me go through it. I, I think partly because I'd actually cast Sigonius and Alien had been very successful. I thought she did great. Um, This is the first thing she'd ever done. First thing ever. I don't think she'd even done high school plays. And I'd talked to her at length and I couldn't, I I figured I need somebody new uh, and clearly should be, you know, beautiful and uh, should be young. And, uh, you know, it varies from time to time. You've suddenly got lots of pretty girls who can act and then suddenly who are of a certain age group and then then that changes its evolution and suddenly you're short and, and so on. And at this particular moment we were a bit short. And I thought I met this one, I just my gut said this one. And I went through, we tested her and she did pretty good. And I'd got a, also I'd also found it rewarding for working with Sigoni. Sigoni was essentially new, but she'd done theatre. good refluxes. He said, I can catch it. As I sit up, that drink's gonna fall I'm gonna catch it. I said, you got it, and he got it. Then he said, it's not on camera. I said, well, you see the splashes. Um, This is great words. This very nice writing here. I mean, throughout really Hampton's, sometimes the best of Hampton here is, I think in the scene with with, um, Roy Batty and um, asking for life father. And here she says, I dreamt music. I thought I could play. I mean, the words are really good, very, very good. And so, again, that's an implant. You're taught how to ski through implant. You're taught how to play tennis through implant. You're taught how to learn a language through implant or through sleeping. In your sleep, you'll be told how to do it. You'll even get fed into your whole psyche and system the body language of skiing and the, so the that's the understanding of how to take a bump. Um, until you do it, until you fall many times, you don't know how to do it. And then if suddenly one day I know how, I can ride the bicycle, I can swim. And that's a memory thing linked with the physical process. So if you lie asleep learning the memory and the physical aspects to that memory, chances are you can walk out in the morning and just do it. That's the theory. Because all sports, for instance, are kind of body language and it's a refinement of body language, right? In relation to action and a ball or action and a slope or, and I'm sure you can learn that, eventually we will learn that or you'll be taken way into it where you can almost just get on skis and go down the slope. not not black, not a ski jumper, you can do it, because you feel in your sleep, you felt it. So if somebody's learning in their sleep, you're actually seeing their body do moves. I think uh, she's frightened. She's frightened. Um, He's falling definitely for her, although it's, um, he's impressed by her. I think he's falling for her, actually. Um, uh, She's frightened of, feeling that relationship occur she doesn't understand the feeling inside her which is making her like this man right and i think we're probably short of the lines to make this really evolve and understand it and instead he's being a stern master of it's till finally she gets it and says uh what was it she said put your hands on me um which is the invitation to the waltz, right and I think uh, eh, they were all a bit they were a bit uneasy about it, and because of that, I was uneasy about it, so I, I don't I think it's one of the scenes which is fully of least successful in the movie, and I think we all needed I think more words probably in this instance, um, a bit harsh in the way it was pushed that's probably my fault. And uh, they were uneasy about it. And I, I always respect the thing of love, the so-called love scenes, fundamentally, are usually totally superfluous. And most of the time, the actors know that. I'm talking about good actors. Know that, and therefore, can, do we need to do this? And i was saying... And frequently, because they're not justified, that's why people... Uh, uh, journalists are always saying to me, "Why in your films, why do you have... Love scenes, such short love scenes, and or why do you have no love scenes? I said because they're not justified. And I said if I'm going to do a film once about justification of sex, you'll really get it, okay? It'll be better than anything made in the valley, mate. So I said, but until I find that, it's kind of it's uh, voyeurism. It's it's uh, to use the English expression, it's a wank off, okay? All right. Yeah, we played in this, Sebastian being, <clears throat> fundamentally, in, in simple terms, having a crush on, on, on Press. and therefore there's a, there's a minor jealousy factor in that. So, and is there a relationship between these replicants or isn't there? Uh, probably, because this is a throwback from the earlier evolution of the, these characters where there were two more replicants in the group and um, we get a funny feeling that they're like a commune in every way, including, uh, you know, sexually. So it's like a, literally a commune. I think that's conveyed quite well. This is my savior, J.F. Sebastian. I think these scenes here are particularly successful. Yeah, I can talk about it now so long afterwards, because only if there's a lot of the scenes which are theatrically, I mean in the best sense of the word, theatrically successful. There's very nice performances, with very difficult and even weird circumstances, which these guys pull off. And So I think the orchestration of all these scenes is really good, and this is where you show real actors, you know, who can really, really, really do it. Um, Daryl does it really well and contains this idea of an ominous presence, but at the same time, is a doll-like innocence to her, but you know it's really dangerous. Um, and uh, Rutger is particularly charming and, and uh, vulnerable as a, uh, I was gonna say as a monster, he's not a monster at all, he's a, an angry replicant who feels he's been really manipulated in his entire being and his entire lifespan will be four years, and he's going to be terminated without any choices. Um, so he's angry and he's afraid, but he's a warrior and he's brave. Um, and Bill Sanderson, because he's so vulnerably between these two creatures who are killers, if they want. No, knight takes queen. So I think this whole passage is very successful. And playing that unspoken affair is really beautiful. The um... And his childlike embarrassment, at at kissing, which is Bill Sanderson's reaction to that. that so well, the, the chess game actually leads us into the fact that the person he plays chess with is, um, Mr. Terrell of the Terrell Corporation, who we're gradually going to find out is father. Is actually the creator of these replicants and we're going to realize that that will lead roy batty to, to sebastian ah, and that's of course how they sort him out they sort out this is a designed me polite entry Show me on the road to meeting tyrell like the real game is uh, what's the chess piece and how is it played i don't know chess so i had to have someone work it out so that it all makes sense, because I, I haven't got the patience for chess. But the idea that Terrell... You know, chess can be played over the telephone because you can't cheat. You can play chess on the transatlantic thing. One grandmaster will play chess with another. And they'll just have this chessboard laid out the way the last move was, so you can't cheat. It's There it is before you when you say, you know, bishop to rook, whatever it is, four. Uh, that's what it is, and it's specific. Um, that's probably why it's one of the greatest of all games. We've got a lot in common. What do you mean? Similar problems. Accelerated decrepitude. Production design here is really beautiful. It honestly reminds me of, I think I remember saying, What is it to be like? And I said, Well, do you remember Miss Havisham? And they know who the hell's Miss Havisham? And it's uh, Great Expectations. That's the uh, the early version, right? Uh, which I still think is one of the great black-and-white films. It's fantastic. Uh, certainly one of Lean's best films, I think. Here's the Miss Havisham Room and all the junk that uh, Sebastian lives with. And uh, this is where we discover that Sebastian uh, has an interest in chess. Honestly, I would have a lot of popularity as a commercial director for Lens flares. So half the time, they were saying, let's get rid of the lens. And I said, no, 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 we leave it in. Let's go for the windows being blown out. Um, because they wanted everything to be perfect. And there's a moment where you kind of kill the negative. You kill the, the life in the frame. And uh, I was always push for all of that. You know, when you're doing television commercials, for the most part, I operated all of them. So you're functioning as a photographer because every shot, you're lining up every shot, and then because of that, you're operating that, and that went right through them both... because um, um, I'm in London on Duelists and uh, Alien. And um, in this, I wasn't allowed to operate for, you know, union reasons, which is fair enough, but I would still climb all over the camera, making sure I lined the shot up the way I wanted it. Um, and then. But they had very good operators, great operators, so... I had no problem, but the problem is the video assistant at that moment was in existence. It wasn't so good, but it wasn't bad. And so I could, you know, if you're an operator, you can tell the frame, you got the frame, you got the dynamics. If I, on this I want a short side, I'm on the left. So I say, I want a bit more short side, can you please do that? So they do a little bit more. And once you get a great operator, he basically, you know, just follows what you want. That's a real owl, of course. And the owl, because it was so still, we could actually put the, the mirror trick on it so you get the perfect um, reflection of its retina. Here we have a redressed Tyrell office in his rather grand bed. And um, the, here you get the first real good look at the disintegration of Sebastian, which is his skin is already going to parchment. So he's kind of wrinkling. Rather badly, and because he has this aging syndrome, where in the he claims he's 25, but he's actually 25, but he's starting to look his skin is the disintegration is already happening. Ridiculous. I always loved working with um, anamorphic because you have this beautiful fall off behind him where everything's sharp, the pieces are sharp terrell is just sharp, everything's falling away behind him. That's the beauty of anamorphic. Whereas anamorphic, that's anamorphic, whereas spherical, you've got less glass to go through, so it's sharper, much crisper. The depth of field is deeper. Um, and it's really a matter of preference, it's a matter of taste. People like to justify it, saying, well, anamorphic is good because you've got big wide shots and landscape, but that's rubbish because... Films are everything from wide to medium to close, at least mine are. So I've got a pretty well-developed ISO. I fall into whatever context it is and I have no problem with it. People say it's hard to fill a frame of anamorphic and I never knew what the hell I were talking about. You know, it's just a matter of what you're looking for through the viewfinder. You design the shot here and the props to shift things out to fit the frame. So you may take that chair, move it onto the right, and frame the column on that. Those are the columns which we put uh, kind of what I call the pleated napkins around. So we disguise the napkins of the office. You'll see one in a minute in more close detail. That's the door that Descartes first walked through, taking him to a rather more flamboyant interior um, and almost gothic. That's why we have the candelabras and the kind of more gothic interior. Pretty flamboyant, actually. And I always love Tyrell's glasses. His eyes glitter golden lava. They're really great. That works really great. The Tyrrell character I discovered on watching The Shining and thought, who the heck is this barman? He was a really great character. And somehow, within the context of Stanley's flashback or, or ghostly flashback, because the one second the dining room was, or the bar, the ballroom was empty, next thing it had a and then it was full. So I guess they were ghosts of a bygone era. And Terrell had this, Joe had this kind of waxen makeup or quality of his skin. You saw Joe was all so cleanly shaven that it was almost like polished ivory. And I thought he was perfect for Terrell, you know? By the second day of incubation, any cells that have undergone reversion mutations. Because the in the an early rendition, evolution, the whole point of the Terrell Corporation being inside a pyramid, the which, had relayed that notion to Doug, and Doug said, "Well, it'd be great to make a building a pyramid." That's unusual, which it would have was for the time very unusual. On but it, there was a. There was a common sense to it, because when, in one version of evolution of the script, when um, Roy Batty executes Tyrell by crushing his head, what he finds on his substance, on his hands, that he knows that the, the blood and the, the, the liquids and the material is not real. He feels it's manufactured. And so he then says to Sebastian, where's the real Tyrell? And Sebastian, takes him into the absolutely interior, centermost point of the pyramid, as in Chops or in Tutankhamun. And inside there he finds a giant sarcophagus. And inside this sarcophagus you can see through the very thick plate glass of the teeny cockpit. You can see in the depths the face of Tyrell. So the irony was that it doesn't matter how rich you are, Um, there'll always be a disease that will get you, or that we haven't got the cure of. And therefore, Terrell, who was in the process of cryogenics as part of his industry anyway, probably 1%, had himself cryogenically, you know, contained until they found the cure for the disease. And the irony was that in the great um, blackout of 2013, as it was in the, when the lights went out in Massachusetts, right, everything went, and Terrell, in those 45 minutes, had perished. And Sebastian, who'd been part of the cryogenic program, had been so embarrassed that they figured they'd have to keep perpetuate the notion that Terrell is alive. Terrell, like Howard Hughes, had actually got several wannabe lookalikes, so that say some hugely important industrialists can have several lookalikes, so you can have one in Tokyo, one in London, and one in New York, and no one knows who the real one is. But we thought that was getting too, you know, involved. But it was actually kind of interesting. Some people had said they came from the notion that Howard Hughes... Was he dead or wasn't he dead? So when Howard Hughes died, they had to keep it a secret. So I believe, and it's probably a rumor, so it's, this is all bullshit, I'm saying, the body of Howard Hughes was carried out from one hotel in Las Vegas in a refrigerator to put him somewhere where, he ordered, where he's meant to be, so he died in a state where, let's say, the capital gains tax would be less. Hey, <laughs> Hey, Body identified with Tyrell 25-year-old male Caucasian, name Sebastian, J.F. Sebastian. Address, Bradbury sector. The spinners are funny because they're beautifully designed and done and seen, and whilst they don't do anything spectacular, they kind of feel real, they feel like they fulfil part of the universe of this time in the future. And um, I think even his car works pretty good, actually. It already looks like some of the models today, doesn't it? OK, checked and cleared. Have a better one. Hello? Hi, is J.S. there? Who is it? Uh, this Eddie, old friend of J.S. Ooh no way to treat a friend. This is a shot we always had a problem with. The, uh the Bradbury building on the right... on the left, sorry. And on the right and foreground are industrial cleaning, street cleaning vehicles, and a, I think a portable, like a trailer restaurant that we st- I stuck down in the foreground. And beyond it, we'd have the matte painting of the rest of the city, and it was the, one of the map paintings that we had a problem with, I don't know why, it was always, the perspective somehow was off, but I think it's okay. I brought these columns to put in the front of the Radbury building, because they're only in jablite or polystyrene, I bought these out from the back of the strip club where Zora ran out onto the street. So I said, I need something on the street to make it weird. So I want those columns and give me a canopy. So we just stood it up at the front door, shot that night and took it away. And in here, the mucking up of this building so that it looked deserted was very simple because I only dressed where you see of little bits of water on the ground, little bits of rubbish could be easily swept up afterwards. So you don't need to do much, you don't need to trash the whole goddamn building. Keeping the idea alive of the advertising Zeppelin um, seemed to be a good place to do it here. And I, Besides, I wanted these lights to come through the roof, so Sparks, at the time, had designed these lights, which is Super Troopers, which I, I, I think are still used today. They're a big snoot light, and I wanted a light that pointed down. Was essentially an arc and pointing a light an arc down you can't do that because the filament element gets too hot so it cracks and explodes. So it was a special light that had to be designed which maybe xenon, but because you don't have the snoot gives it its tubular effect. Kinda beautiful. So you have a use of a little bit of smoke in here and the super trooper lights just carve straight through it. We were cleaning up rubbish as we went, so we could leave, the, you know, that night. The problem in those days, one would shoot right around the clock, so I'd be shooting till, hmm, I'd start at six and sh- end at six. Night shoots are hell, and they're really a bad deal, because everybody gets exhausted after lunch, which is one o'clock in the morning. And I think after one o'clock in the morning you get, I don't care who it is, you get 40%. Everybody's going down. using my artists as toys or little people as creatures as he designed was, you know, fair enough. And I got some of that off an early illustrative book on a, a painter that Hampton loved, that he showed me early on, which were extraordinary, and I forget who they were, but extraordinarily detailed and very, very realistic. But that girl on the left is a really great my artist. I was absolutely tickled by her. I couldn't believe how well she did that. She's great at that recoil on the head. And it worked well in here with that laughing fairground creature. i she actually make this up on the day. I just made this up on the spot. Was she gonna attack him? Then I thought, why not? Let's put her in here. I've got that. So let's sit her amongst them. Daryl was this um, very beautiful girl, very athletic, strong, who could play this naive, waif, child, woman, and also be very dangerous. And we mixed, you know, the acrobatics are... I couldn't get the violence in a female acrobat, so when she runs and jumps, tumbling at high speed, it's t- you need strength to do that. Pretty savage Well, I saw this with the view for her and I thought, wow, I didn't realise she was that tough. <laughs> Pretty damn good, actually. I was quite impressed, even... After all those years, in fact, I've never seen her be this dangerous ever since. Right? She really kicks his ass. She even shocked me. I said, "My goodness, Daryl." This is great sequence, yeah. That um, this is a bit of her, and it was pretty exhausting doing this actually. So I think I actually had to put thin rubber down underneath, otherwise she'd bruise her arms. But she's like a doll going crazy, and the engines. The motors on out of control. This was a set we built. The set inside Warner's, I think, yeah. So I think it dovetailed pretty well in relation to what might be inside, because the offices inside the Broadway building are all tiny, and so we could get. We I think the front door is a plug. So it's a plug, so that you could go through to the apartment inside, which is on the stage. This is where, you know, you could really control it and be beautifully lit, which it is. He he really can really control big space and, you know, and the close-ups beautifully in the same shot. When you're on a big stage like this, you can actually... Sometimes you get an idea, if you can, as long as it's... You know, the smallest things are frequently the most powerful things, so Roy Batty punching through a wall to to rip his hand back through the wall was something that was kind of more or less worked out on the spot. Him, and I thought, once that's done, I thought it would be great if... Roy Batty thrust his head through the wall in the bathroom, so now I'm on that role. You can set people up. So I'll say, I'm coming to that in about two hours, cut a hole in the wall, plaster it over, and he's going to push his head through. So these things evolve on the spot. With filming, that you've always got to think ahead. I thought you were supposed to be good. Aren't you the... I wanted to be extreme. Uh, because, you know, fights are always difficult. You know, because one fight is like another fight, and so it's thinking about the original moves you can make inside the fight to make it unusual. I learned that on Alien, because the last 17 minutes on Alien, there is no dialogue, and there's Sigourney on. Um, and basically, she's running to and fro in the ship. So that can get boring. You've got to keep it alive with big ideas, so... There's a logic to, I want to ship, switch the ship off. Oh, my God, now I can't get off, so I've got, to, I've got to switch the ship on to explode. Now I've got to get out, and I can't get out because the entrance is being blocked. By the end, I've got to switch it. So there's just that is a big, simple idea, and it gives them a focus of target as to what the heck they're going for. Otherwise, it's just action on action, which actually can get boring. Straight doesn't seem to be good enough. Now it's my turn. I'm gonna give you a few seconds before I come. One. This idea of putting in here the game, I'm coming, um, where are you, little man? Um, He's gonna play with him. Even here, Roy Batty is um, on paper always perceived as this um, omnipotent uh, warrior. And, you know, absolutely, 400% as a killing machine. And um, I think maybe Hampton had written him uh, as more of a monster. And, and I, I can't really um, remember, honestly, but the minute I cast Rutger, I thought Rutger was fundamentally such a kind man that, that was gonna emerge, and doesn't matter what his acts of violence are, you have got to feel for him. And of course, by what the company and the corporation are doing to these people, and what um, 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 the, our Blade Runner is having to do as his job, and now to actually stay alive and defend himself is all incredibly unsympathetic. So you've got the hero here, who's a, who is without question an actor who's normally playing the hero. The roles are gradually being evened out. I don't think he's becoming an, a bad guy here. I think he's about survival. Um, and whereas the other one is becoming heroic because whilst we know he's gonna die, he knows he's gonna die, he's still playing out the game. So it's a demonstration of prowess and courage, which is kind of almost admirable. I've just seen a, fi- a film called American Gangster with two guys who are essentially, by, in every respect, on paper, unsympathetic. One deals in heroin and drugs, and the other one is a very straight cop who actually, private life is not very good. So you're dealing with two guys that you shouldn't really like, but at the end of the movie, you really like them. It's, a, it's an odd thing, gives it a strange dynamic. This is what I loved about this, I think this is very successful in terms of these two men who are playing now through this contest and who will survive. And um, it's almost a leveling out here of, of, maybe that's what dramatically was to a certain extent at that time confusing for them is that they didn't know who to root for. When in fact, you're kind of rooting for both of them. You kind of want him to get away, but you're really feeling tragically concerned and sorry for the replicants who are disappearing. And all of them are quite sympathetic. That was the challenge. So that's when he gets to the nail. The nail is thought of pretty well on the spot. How do I give yourself adrenaline? You give yourself adrenaline, say alive by driving something through your hand. So the adrenaline will keep you present for at least another few more minutes, right? So that became the game. The gift, the gift of life, ironically, will be given at the end by the person who, uh, you know, will die of his own natural causes. In other words, Roy Batty will expire with the engine inside him, which will stop in, in within the next short space of time, our special effects cameraman is Richard Jurizic and whose brother is Matt Jurizic And uh, Matt did all the Matt work in this, and uh, and uh, Richard did all the camera work. And but I wanted to hang around. I wanted to be there and see it happen. I was fascinated by it and get my eye to it and get my 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 input in terms of. You know, you can't, you couldn't put Atmos in in those days. Today, you digitally just put it in. Just putting those raindrops over the painting at that time was pretty tricky. It's quite difficult. Shows very well here, actually, doesn't it? After a quarter of a century, the effects are pretty good, pretty damn good. And um, but you know, it's a bit like doing using your loaf, um, where I think we have so much at our fingertips today. That's why effects budgets go to 80 million in madnesses like that. And they say, yeah, but the effects are that much more complex, but I'm not necessarily sure it makes something better. I was very surprised how good this all holds up. We couldn't work out how the heck we we're going to do this because I'd seen the building downtown. And I'd said to Gary Coombs, um, the stuntman, uh, Do you think you can jump this gap? And he went, No. I'm not gonna do that, Are you crazy? And I said, okay, well, he said, you have to have a net. And I said, oh, we'll see the net, I can't get a wide shot. He said, well, it's a bit too, it's a, he said, it's what I call a shade too wide. And Gary was great, so um, I walked around the back lot and thought that, you know, I can, if I copy the cornice, which is what Harrison is climbing up right now, off one of the buildings that, at this point, this is a match of a building that I'd been looking up at, which is the top of the Bradbury building but eventually we just copied the corners we liked. And so he's now climbing over the top like a pretty good mountain climber, free climber. Even that blue light is on the building. The light isn't on anymore. It's like a big, it's rather beautiful eye of a, of a fly. This is a set piece that we got on wheels and we moved in right next to that piece of set behind it is where Zora ran through I had all the shot fronts and I shot it. So, I just cleared away the shop fronts. I like the canopy, so I pushed this in so the canopy could easily be the top of a building and put letter forms on top of it, as if it's the top of a skyscraper or, you know, a 30 story building. Then the gap we could adjust so down underneath the gap is a big cushion. You jump the gap and miss, you're still going to hurt yourself because the cushion is a cushion almost as deep as this room, it's an airbag. But you'll still scrape yourself on the wall going down. You'll probably scrape your face and your front. So it's not the easiest of jumps. And Rutger did it. Rutger, um, big man did that little hop, skip and jump. There's no trick to that. He jumped. It must be about, I think, 15 feet, which is wide enough, you know? this is be wet. Because there was a stuntman who, that's quite, that's not, that's Gary. That hurt. When you bash into that, that hurt. And not only that, you've got those projections out, which if you missed it, ooh, you would give yourself a nasty stomach ache. So it's a it's a pretty nasty jump. And I always wanted this here because this is where he has the choice to let him die. He just all he has to go and do is walk away. And um the Conversation that's about to ha- happen, which is um, living in fear. Um, how does it feel to live in fear? Um, is a pretty nice encapsulation of everything that the film is about, um, and covers all kinds of ground and relationships. Um, if you want to hear it, um, and then. And I think the subtlety is missed because it is subtle. And the fact that Descartes is able to deny him the pleasure of pleading, instead he spits at him, which is basically saying, I'm not going to, the last thing I'm going to do is ask for help. And that's why he saves him. Watch, so he's going to spit at him. (laughs) There. Catches him. He's gonna let him off the hook. And that moment and I think it doesn't really show, but because the moment is too quick, that there's a maybe there's a flash of admiration for the courage of one warrior to another. And that's why he decides to let him live. Right there he decides to let him live. Hopefully to carry on the story to episode two. And um again we have a pretty um daring and uh, brave thing for Harrison to do, which is be the guy who's taking it from what is theoretically the bad man, the bad guy. And uh, we're about to hear one of the, my favorite speeches, which is um, the Sea beam speech. I've seen things that you people haven't seen. Um, and it does sound like a poem. It's lovely. Beautiful. It sounds like a very modern poem, is not it? It's very vivid and very um, somehow graphically satisfying. It's beautiful. All those moments will be lost in time. This is uh, summertime. This is 4, a. 4 5 a.m. You can see the blue light coming up and I'm going to have the plug pulled. This is my last shot and there ain't gonna be anything after this, pal. And um this is the last day. And at two o'clock in the morning, um, after lunch, um, you know, he called me and said, Uh, you, will you pop around here for a second in the trailer? I just want to add some things to this last speech. And if you like it, I'll do it, I'll do it both ways. He was always like that, I thought it was really cool. So he, he did it, he read it for me in the trailer and I was really touched by it and I said let's do it and so we did it and uh, it's there it is it stays in there there was an interesting thing in favorite moments in movies in the Sunday Times about I think five years six years ago something and in there I was flicking through it thinking oh okay I'm not in oh there it is so I had this photograph his close-up and his speech and and he thought that it was, he said, I thought it was, at first I thought it was Keats or Shelley. Then he realized, wait a minute, Sea beams off Orion. That doesn't make sense. He realized that it was actually, had been written for the movie. And he said he always thought it was one of his favorite moments. You've done a man's job, sir. I guess you're through, huh? yeah eddie um was great great patience and great um supporter and great talent and said you know i can do this guy straight let me come up with what might be termed city speak which will be a form of esperanto you know george bernard shaw invented esperanto you know i think i'm right in that is that right which was a great idea where you take segments of each language, of the common languages of Europe. Well, there's no common language. Make a common language of Europe out of a little bit of French, a little bit of Spanish, a little bit of of English, a little bit of Celtic. Um, Mix it all up and you have an Esperanto, which everybody will understand. So Eddie was wrestling with this Esperanto, and um, it, it was pretty interesting, pretty successful, I think. Unusual. That's why the voiceover used to explain city-speak, and I didn't think you really had to explain it, Rachel? Deckard clearly is cynical from the very moment that we join him in the film. Deckard is already beginning to lose his humanity in terms of the job he does, and he's becoming a number, he's becoming part of the company, he's becoming part of that or- Orwellian nightmare, and... Um, by exchanging and confronting with his quarries, he, I think at the end you get a sense he discovers his own, rediscovers his own humanity. And he will have a relationship with her even if it's a four years or two years. Or, and if they're both replicants and they're both nexus Eight, then maybe they'll live the normal lifespan. So it's a kind of romantic notion as well. And I I really like this, the way the film, you know, devolves, which is the possibility that she may be dead, because if Roy Batty has died, then has she died? um, uh, He had to execute Prisk, otherwise it was kill or be killed. With Roy Batty, it was really kill or be killed until Roy Batty let him off the hook. Um, And she may be dead in here. And we're reminded of that by Eddie. Eddie's very important just before this because what we're about to see when they walk out is the reminder of Eddie was there, which was the, the, um, the unicorn on the ground. And if I'd had him go in and find the unicorn, then the assumption here would have been stronger that she's dead. But then you would have, I wanted it to be the last word. So it's on the walkout, so Eddie must have been there. So in that moment, you have to take all things into consideration think he would leave trails of information throughout the film, like the chicken, the this stick man, the, and now the unicorn, really is a comment, A, to say, I've been here, it's the most important thing, B, why didn't he kill her? And if he didn't kill her and he knows what goes on inside Deckard's head, which is a very private dream that Deckard would never talk to anyone about, which is about him thinking, dreaming about unicorns, dreaming of green. Then by Eddie knowing that, working for the department, then he must know Deckard's file. That means Deckard probably is a replicant. And if you're a replicant and you work hunting replicants, you probably in your deep Innermost feelings might feel that you are a replicant, you might sense that you are a replicant, if even just the paranoia of the job you do leads you to believe that you might be one as well. So that, that was always that thought at the end. Because his look at the end is a confirmation, agreement that what's always been in his mind, that was he, was he or wasn't he? And So, there it is, Eddie's been here, Gaff's been here, and how could he have known? And now I know. So, after 25 years, I hope you enjoy this as much as I did talking about it, and uh, Hopefully we'll do this in 25 years time. Signing off.